2: From Justice, this week, Edwina's In Conversation.
3: Yes, from the cobbles of Corrie in Manchester to lessons from the States, as I chat to a clinician, consultant and lecturer who's recognised for her pioneering work in the development of gender-responsive and trauma-informed
4: services. What I was told is that if I was going to work clinically with a trauma survivor, I would be working with them multiple times a week for a very long period of time, three to five years, and that would be the only thing that would be effective. But over time, I've realised that people can make a difference in 10 minutes.
2: Today Edwina's in conversation with Dr Stephanie Covington.
4: My work really started because I was interested in working with women with addictive disorders and then many years ago I was at a women's conference and during the break I was standing a circle with some of the participants and a woman had on a name tag that said warden and I said I don't know any wardens, I don't which would be your governor right and um, I realized I didn't know anything about women in prison. they'd been totally invisible to me, and then that evening, when I was doing a talk for the community, she brought six women out of the prison to listen to me, and I was standing with a group of women and I was so taken by why they were in there, and I was out here, and I realized it was privilege and yeah. and I realized I needed to do something in the prison. And that was probably 30 years ago. And so you got the bug. I got the bug. Mm. And then I went and lived in the women's prison for a few days in North Carolina. What
3: do you mean? How, what, what, what do you mean?
4: <laughs> <laughs> I know. That's what the warden said. So I called her and I said, I'm coming back to North Carolina next year. I want to do something in the prison. She said, fine. And then I realized I wanted to live in the prison. So I called her back and I said I'd like to spend a couple of days there and she said it's not a hotel. Yeah. I said I know, but I just and I have no idea where this came from. I was just compelled. And over the course of that year she finally gave me permission to come in and live in the prison for a couple of days. And I knew when I left there that was my work.
3: So what was that like? What were the feelings? I mean, obviously, it's different when you've committed a crime and it's your sentence and you're never coming out. So I imagine the two experiences will still be different, but it's the closest you'd you'd probably get without committing a crime. So what were the feelings?
4: Well, I think it's really different because I knew I was coming out. But um, I can tell you it was overwhelming, just the first experience of a few hours of having every choice taken away, your freedom taken away. Not knowing how to navigate, not knowing what was expected of you. There's so many things. I mean, the next morning, going to breakfast, and on the top, it was a cafeteria-style, and on the top ledge, there were some apples. So I went to reach for an apple, and the woman behind me said, Oh, no, those apples, fresh fruits only for the staff. And the interesting thing is, my immediate reaction is I wanted to steal the apple, and that's not something I do. (laughs) Um, So I I thought, Oh, my God, I can't do that. I'm here... (laughs) As but a guest but the, the
3: apple was put in front of you so as to tease yes, you.
4: exactly, exactly. I got in trouble the first night. I didn't realize that you're not supposed to talk after a certain hour. They didn't explain anything to me. So I was treated as though the staff didn't know I was visiting, nor did the women.
3: Right, so they thought you were there on a sentence yes, by
4: them. That, yeah, that's what they thought.
3: Did anyone ask you why you were there?
4: No, it's interesting. No. Women didn't ask about what what made me come here or... Did you have a line prepared? I did have a line prepared. But what's interesting is they share that with each other after they know each other a little bit. First, the experiences the women start to size each other up kind of. And you could see that some of them felt safe with each other, some they were more reluctant. But no one really pressured me to share anything like that. Mm. But over time, um, those couple of days, women shared stories with me of... Really difficult choices they had to make, particularly around their children. So when I left, it was so funny because I really wanted to do this. I mean, I really pushed to have this happen because mm. you don't get to do this. Yeah. And and the evening, it was a Sunday evening that I was going in. I was actually really afraid. <laughs> I hadn't been afraid, but I thought, why did you get yeah. yourself into this? This is nuts. Um, but then the last day I was there, they told them I was just visiting, and they said... They asked me that Some of the women said, "Were you afraid to come here?" And I said, "Yeah, I was." And they said, well, "Did you think we'd hurt you?" And it wasn't that. I said, "Actually, I was afraid you wouldn't speak to me." How I, interesting! Yeah, I really was afraid I'd be isolated. Isn't that interesting?
3: And they weren't cross to find out that you'd sort of no. Not they were very. Them, they were but... really
4: curious. Right. They were very curious about why I would do that and what did I, you know, and I didn't even know why at that point. Yeah. But I knew when I left that this was my work. I didn't and know how it would be. I didn't know. At the, at the time, I was had this three-year consulting job with the Betty Ford Center to redo women's treatment. And that was considered a real plum job. But I knew when that was over, I was going to be doing mm. work with women in prison. I didn't know how or what, but I just knew. And you it. said that was about 30 years
3: ago? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so can you explain a bit more about sort of trauma? We know that women around the globe end up in prison and in difficulty uh, for all sorts of reasons, but the levels of interpersonal violence are very high, domestic violence, things like that. So can you explain why people, whether they work inside a prison or whether they work in a community group or whether they work in a school or anywhere, why we should all actually have a, a better understanding of trauma and how it affects people?
4: Yeah, well, women who are justice-involved women have the highest rates of violence in their lives, and what we've learned over the years is people who have a trauma history that very often this is the piece that's underneath their mental health problems, their substance misuse problems, aggression and violence, physical health problems, and we've been trying to solve the difficulties people are challenged by, but we're not looking underneath, and We've just over, again, 25 or 30 years, we've learned a lot about trauma and a lot about its impact on the brain and about its impact on how people behave and how they experience life. So if we want to be successful in helping people who struggle, we have to begin to look at their trauma histories. And a lot of your work is really
3: about demedicalizing this stuff, which can be quite a challenging thing to talk to people about, particularly if they're from um, a medical background. But you yourself come from the sort of educational end of psychiatry and psychotherapy,
4: don't you? So could you say a bit about um, your journey from the more medicalized end? Yes, because, you know, originally the way I was trained and what I was told is that if I was going to work clinically with a trauma survivor, I would be working with them multiple times a week for a very long period of time, three to five years. And that would be the only thing that would be effective. So I, okay, and I would do my clinical work. But over time, I've realized that that really is a misunderstanding, that we all can make a difference, that even very small things make a difference. People can make a difference in 10 minutes. Mm. And um, so that the people, particularly if we're talking about women in prison, all the staff in a prison can be making a difference Mm. in terms of their tone of voice, their attitude, the way they treat people, when we think about our programming, when we think about how you run a facility, all those things make a difference in terms of how a trauma survivor experiences it and whether or not she's going to be open to other programming and having other programs be effective. So uh, how I was originally trained, I've totally discounted at this point. Right. (laughs) Um, So I'm a
3: member of staff in a women's prison, and I come across um, a woman who looks a bit distressed. What do you mean I can make a difference in 10 minutes? Explain to me what I'm meant to do
4: if, uh, if I come across a woman who's really distressed. You can say to her, you know, I just realized you looked really distressed. Is there, is there something that you'd like to talk to me about? You can say something like, you know, so many of the women here we've learned have had really difficult life experiences, and we have people here who can help you. And you can even say, there's some things I can teach you or demonstrate for you that are really good things to help comfort and soothe yourself if you're feeling distressed. Hmm. So in a very short period of time, anybody can do these things. It does Hmm. not take any kind of major...
3: uh, I was going to say, because it sounds rather simplistic and easy.
4: It is easy. yeah. Yeah, and I guess that's the magic of it. They're simple things, they're easy things, and part of what I've tried to do... More recently in my work is sort of demystify all of... Because he, people hear trauma and it's it's a difficult word. The, these are really difficult experiences. People are worried they're going to hurt somebody or or harm somebody by doing it wrong. But there's so many things we can do in just the way we, we talk to people.
3: Because becoming trauma-informed can sound maybe a bit jargony to some mm-hmm. people, but... From what I've seen, it's actually about reducing violence. And certainly in the prisons in our country, we're needing to reduce violence across the board. So is that really at the heart of changing the way staff
4: work and how they interact with the residents? Well, I I think that when we're working with people in these custodial settings, both actually men and women, who've had histories of violence in their own personal lives and have been violent, we have to work with this both ways. We have to work with them as victims of violence as well as victimizers. Mm. And often we take someone, your criminal justice system, the U.S. criminal justice system, has been designed to work with people who hurt other people. Mm. But what we've forgotten is people who've been hurt hurt other people. And we have to acknowledge both sides of that.
3: In our country, there's always a debate about, and um, the discussion is the victim and the perpetrator, like they're never the same person. And of course, they're more often than not the same person. It's like the victim's outside the walls and the perpetrator's inside the walls. And that's not helpful.
4: No, and and, no, particularly in the criminal justice system, the victim and the victimizer are usually the same person. Mm. But we've only focused on one piece of the equation, and therefore I don't think we've got it right.
3: And what about the gender piece? Because... Working in a gender-responsive way is so important, but can you sort of demystify what that means? Because I think there's um, a bit of an, a misunderstanding also around around this topic.
4: Sure. Well, you know, when we, in the beginning, talking about gender, we just talked about male and female, and we sort of had this binary system. Mm. And now we're looking at gender on a continuum, that there's some people who are... Transgender, they have moved from one sex to the other. There are people who are gender nonconforming or gender fluid. There's this different language. But when we look at some of the differences in terms of trauma, and I'm going to go back to boys and girls, men and women, um, both boys and girls are at risk for physical and sexual abuse in their childhood, particularly from family members, people they know. But the difference happens over the course of life where... An adolescent boy is at risk from um, essentially people who don't like him, such as if he's a gay young man, a young man of color, he might be a young man transitioning, a gang member. So he's at risk from people who often dislike him, whereas the teenage girl is at risk in her relationships from the person to whom she's saying, I love you. And then in adult life with men, a men's greatest risk for harm comes from being a victim of crime by a stranger. But the woman's greatest risk for harm is in her relationships. Mm. So when we work with women, we're working with women who very often have been harmed over the course of their life by people they knew that they were in relationship with that supposedly loved them but hurt them. It's very unusual to work with a man that way. Right. But, of course,
3: I'm sure you do come across men where that has happened. Yes. But generally speaking, when you're
4: looking at populations, that's the the norm. Right. And – The transgender population has the greatest risk for harm, and we haven't even been talking about them much in Mm. our society. They've sort of been on the sidelines. So we know that this is part of the history, and we know that men, the risk is different for harm, and the response is different. Mm. And so when we're being gender responsive, we're really responding to those differences in order to be more impactful and have programming that's more effective.
3: Because sometimes... People will say, well, you're treating women in a preferential way, and that can sometimes creep in, which which I think is unhelpful. So you wouldn't say that it's about treating someone preferentially.
4: Absolutely not. It's not not about that at all. It's understanding the differences in their life experience and then how do you reach them. Because actually working with men in trauma is a different experience because it's much harder for men to even admit that they've had abuse and trauma. They often carry a lot of shame that they haven't been able to protect themselves. Uh, It's hard for men to be vulnerable and to share painful feelings. So we work with men differently. Mm. Um, And, you know, we, we work with men that have had really major criminal histories and created really horrific crimes, particularly in the United States. They have very long sentences. They've been in isolation units for 10, 20 years. Um, And we're working with them through the lens of trauma. And we're working effectively. Talking about your work, could
3: you explain
4: exactly what it is you do? What do I do? Um, How would you explain? Well, I do. I think I do things on multiple levels. I do a certain amount of training and trying to create organizational change in these large systems. So that means changing training, uh, administration, and staff. I also write program materials, um, interventions that can be used with men and women, both in the community or in a correctional setting. And so we use this language, trauma-informed, as trying to educate people what trauma is, and then trauma-responsive, trying to get them to respond to what they know and change policies and practices, and then trauma-specific is what we actually do with the people we serve. Right. So I do things on multiple levels.
3: So it's the training of staff. Mm-hmm. It's putting programs into prisons for the residents. And there's a piece, isn't there, about environment. Absolutely. Which is very challenging in a in
4: a prison setting. That's part of the organizational changes. How do you help prisons look at their environment? And their environment is the physical environment, such as paint on the walls. It's it's the noise, the yelling. The Um, clanging—it's the way that they. It's where they, where we, where we even put prisons are usually in isolated areas. Sometimes where family members can't visit—that's part of the environment. Um, It's the attitude of of staff, how they how they treat uh, the people who have been incarcerated in these institutions. That creates the environment. There are all these pieces, so that's Mm. part of the organizational change. That I'm trying to have my work impact. Can you say a little bit about
3: triggers? Because if women have suffered trauma before they come into prison, certainly being arrested and put in prison is a very traumatizing event as well. And of course, we know that once they're on the wings, and as you said, the noises, it's enough to sort of trigger someone back. But what do you mean? What What does the word trigger mean? What What is
4: that? Well, it, it triggers the word we use to describe something that a trauma uh, survivor experiences. A a trigger can come from a sight, a sound, a smell, and when the trauma survivor experiences it, it pushes her back in time and she's flooded by the feelings she had during the traumatic event. So the criminal justice system is filled with triggers. There are the loud noises, there's the clanging, there's the experience of being restrained, putting in isolation, having a handcuff, being cuffed. um, They're just all kinds of things that we do in a very automatic way that for someone who's ex- had a traumatic experience, so let's say a woman was restrained and physically abused, so now she, or she was restrained and abused as a child or sexually violated, now she's an adult, someone restrains her and her mm. body responds as though it's been threatened and she reacts to something that has happening now that's actually connected to the right.
3: past. And it's at that point where the woman can become violent exactly and under usual circumstances from what I've seen that's when an officer might have to restrain someone and maybe take them to the segregation unit and isolate them from from everyone else which uh yeah when you take their trauma histories into account it seems like you're then punishing someone for
4: feeling fearful right and angry about something that happened to them in their past. Because, exactly. So sometimes just our automatic ways of doing something escalate the problem you don't want to have happen. And so very often we find that as we're training prison officers and other people to understand this, it then helps them to respond in a different way, in a more thoughtful way, versus, you did that, I'm doing this. Hmm. Stepping back and thinking, saying to her, you seem really distressed, what can I do to help you? I often think of an example
3: of a male member of staff unlocking the door to a woman's cell and if she's lying on her bed and she's been the victim of sexual abuse and has maybe been raped throughout her whole life by someone in her household, that very moment of the man walking through the door and finding her lying on her bed, you know, that would be enough to make
4: anyone... That, that could be the trigger. Yeah. It could be that. And they, so they, it comes from all kinds of places.
3: But the difficult thing is that often staff might not know
4: this. Most staff don't know this. It, it is not, in general, it's not part of your training academy. It's not part of, you know, I'm from California. We're just putting this piece into our training academy because we know now that when officers understand this, it helps them to think about how to behave differently because they've really been trained to respond to escalating violence versus being trained to think about what does that behavior mean. Hmm. Um, but, you know, we also want the staff to think about these issues in their own lives We've been talking about the women or the men in the criminal justice system, but so often the staff members have this history also. And very often they haven't acknowledged it. They've pushed it aside. And so they also can be in a vulnerable place around all this.
3: And how does that impact their work? Can you give me an example?
4: Well, let's imagine that someone is a correctional officer, they have this history and um, they go to a training and you're going to find different people respond in different ways. Some will say, oh, this makes such sense and, you know, this is part of my life and I really need to learn how to manage my feelings better and my responses. You might have someone else saying, I had this in my history and I pulled myself up by my bootstraps and I've, you to making change. And sometimes you have to push a little harder because the way some people have managed the trauma histories is to push it aside, cover it up, deny it. Hmm. But it always comes back out in some way.
2: From Justice, you're listening to In Conversation with Edwina Grosvenor. This week, Edwina is speaking to Dr. Stephanie Covington.
3: Can you explain a bit more about um, your work in the UK, how long you've been working here, where you think we are as a
4: system today? Um, You know, the first time, actually many years ago, I came and I worked in Oxford with a probation service. But the more recent thing was 2012, a conference uh, at the Institute of Criminology in Cambridge. And I spoke about trauma. And a small group of women got together and said, you need to come back and and, and start talking more about it. And you were part of that group. So that was 2014. And so now I've been working here regularly since 2014, sometimes every six months, sometimes once a year. And what I see happening is there's just such a more open and willingness now to talk about this. And compared I see, to America? Or well, I compa- see compared to where it was before. Right. And also compared to America, you're not, you're not as punitive as we are. When I've gone into the women's prisons and saw a woman that was supposedly was in an isolation cell and how she was managed compared to what it looks like, for example, in California hmm. so dramatically less different. Less guns. Yes, <laughs> you don't, yeah, your guns, your, all your weaponry, you're your just less punitive and harsh but there's still room for improvement here. It is – you know, I, I do think you're a, a a better, more humane system than most of the things that I see in the United States. And I also see changes happening and people embracing this and wanting to do it differently. I think it makes sense to people when they understand it. I think mm. that's part of why it works. People's light, light bulbs yeah. go off and they say, oh. yeah.
3: And I think it allows people the time to reflect on why people go to prison and what for. And at the end of the day, the judge hands down a sentence. The punishment is the loss of liberty. And as far as I'm concerned, that's it. You know, from there on in, we're there to care for that person, to make sure that they come out and are less likely to cause any more harm to themselves or to other people. Um, But we seem to have lost that somewhere over the decades
4: it's the same thing, you know. When I'm often one of the things that I've often done in prisons, and when I go in as I and working with staff, I ask them, okay, what is your belief system? And I have them. I put a big line up on a wall. And I say, at one end, do you believe going to prison is the punishment? At the end, of the other end, I say, or do you believe once someone's in prison, we need to punish them? And in the United States, the staff is usually fifty-fifty on that. Mm, half, interesting. half believe prison sufficient. The other half say, no, they're here and they need to be punished. Mm. So we see a difference in the belief system of staff.
3: And that's quite interesting because I think that has implications for the training academies, whether it's in the UK or America. You know, it's like these people are going into the prisons without being given clear guidance on what their job is, what's expected of them, and really how to look after
4: these people. Exactly. So it's, you know, I think as societies, both American and British, in many ways, many citizens have really distanced themselves from prisons. They don't know what goes on there. They don't even know where they're located. They don't know anyone who's been in one. And yet prisons belong to us as community members. These are our institutions, and I think we need to take responsibility for them. Absolutely. So when the staff are trained,
3: and then you have the residents running their groups. In an ideal world, that's all going brilliantly well. Everyone's engaged. Everyone's rowing in the same direction. Is it actually a culture
4: shift you're looking for inside the prison? Absolutely. Absolutely. So we want staff to be trained, all sta- all administration, all staff to be to trained. understand trauma, to understand the difference between a man and a woman and why their trauma histories might be different. Exactly. Understand how to respond. Um, and then we want to put in these trauma-specific interventions, which what we're beginning to do here, uh, where you can train the residents to be the facilitators of the groups, mm. uh, which also makes them very impactful. And if we do, I believe, and we, we've seen is over time, we can change the culture of institutions by doing these things. And that's ultimately the goal. And then. The
3: evidence and the research from America says that once once that culture shift has happened, or you know these the way this way of working has been adopted, what does that mean for levels of violence and harm to self and harm to
4: others? Those numbers go down dramatically. The suicide attempts go down. The harm to self goes down. The harm to others, both to other residents as well as staff, that goes down. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's research on this that people can find? Yes. Because this is always the big question. Yes, there's research and you can find it. Um, And (laughs) Where? Where can (laughs) people find that? Well, one particular report on a women's prison in Massachusetts, I think that actually is probably on on my website. It's certainly... um, uh, we can put that on your website. Um, the research on what's happened w- using these interventions, both exploring trauma for men and healing trauma for women, that research is also on my website. Um, and we, you know, this, this, and we're gathering more. Uh, we more evidence every day we also have beyond violence that we've used in women's prisons now for which is peace. another intervention another intervention that i've written this is deliberately written for women who committed violent aggressive crimes in the community and what we can see is there's an impact both on the women who participate in these also it, as you said it changes what's happening inside the facility um, that when the women begin to make changes for themselves it changes their behavior in a way that facilities become safer.
3: And how far ahead would you say the work in the women's prisons are compared to men? Because people say, well, men suffer trauma too. Why is everyone always talking about the women and and their problems? I know you're working in the male prisons
4: in America, but Mm -hmm. how many years behind is the work with the men, would you say? In the United States, in those prisons, I would say the men's work is probably two years behind the women's. Okay, so not too far. No, but the numbers are even greater. We've Mm. actually had even – because we have a larger male population. In the U.K., you have 4,000 women approximately in prison. And we right now in California have cut our population in half, and we have about six thousand in California alone in prison. Right, and it was twelve. It was twelve. Yeah, yeah. And but and that sounds really good. But what a lot of people don't realize, many of those women are now in what we call our county jails. They've gone into uh, right. So they're not really. They're not out. out in the commu- <laughs> no, no. They're just they've in been a, moved. They've been moved yeah. into a facility closer to home. Actually, many of them. So some are out, but. It's not like they're out-out. So we have these huge numbers. And so the men's work is a little behind the women's because we started with the women. Um, But as soon as we were successful, the women they wanted in the men's. And uh, so we're moving right along. So it sounds actually like this work
3: isn't about staff and people in prisons. It sounds like it's if you're a human being working with a human being that this is relevant. Who else is doing this work? Because it sounds so... Obvious and important.
4: Well, and what we've understood is now we believe that everyone who works with people needs to become trauma informed. Whether it's a school teacher, whether it's a physician, someone working in a mental health system, everyone that works with people, police, fire, everyone. And so there are some communities in the United States who are really taking this on across all their human services. And, in fact, the city of Philadelphia, which is a fairly large metropolitan city, mm. is working to becoming a trauma-informed city.
3: Wow. What, I mean, <laughs> how, how does, how That's does huge. that work? That's
4: huge. Well, just think about all the services that are provided in a city and what that means about training employees across across the board in every agency, facility. This is a huge undertaking.
3: And who would it have been at the top, because leadership is so key, who would it have been in Philadelphia that had to say, right, I green light this, we're going to do it?
4: Well, number one, Philadelphia is a city that's had multiple problems. There's a certain, you know, it's a historical city to us, um, but it also is a city that has a lot of racial issues, a lot of violence, poverty, hunger, And I think a group of city officials, plus a colleague of mine, actually, Sandy Bloom, who's a psychiatrist who's worked a lot with trauma and with environments, and they have started thinking about this a few years ago, and the mayor said, let's do this. Um, District attorney said, I agree. Mm. And people in leadership positions came together, created a team, and said, okay, how do we move this forward? And they know This is not a short-term process. And this is the other thing that happens in our communities or with our leadership. If it's always changing, how do you get any leadership to follow through? You know, culture change in a prison is a three- to five-year process. Taking a city and thinking we're going to make this trauma-informed, you have to think long-term. So you have to have people who are committed to this process long-term, even if their role changes or if their job title changes. There has to be leadership holding this and moving it forward. And Philadelphia has put that together. They've made a commitment personally and as a community. So what about the
3: services, though? Because historically... And generally speaking, most of our services don't address trauma and they're not written with either a woman in mind or a man in mind. So they're sort of gender neutral or or written for men and given to women. So that, of course, would cost a lot of money because that involves rewriting all our services. And so, you know, everyone always says there's no money and, and that's always a reason not to do anything.
4: Well, number one, a lot of money is spent and wasted. Correct. <laughs> so it isn't like there's any money. No, all these services have money. They just don't use it. Most of them don't use their money wisely, quite honestly. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's how the money is allocated and used. Training needs to happen. It takes costs money to train. But once that starts to happen, people begin to see how to make changes within the context of what they're doing. And the good example was the Framingham Prison for Women that got no money, And changed their mental health services inside a prison and did this because they wanted to do it and became smart. Mm. So I am quite certain – oh, I can find out more about it. But I'm quite certain that millions of dollars, billions of dollars was not given to Philadelphia to do this. But as a community, they made a decision. And they made a decision about how to use their resources. And we also know
3: that a lot of money goes into our prison systems and we are not getting the results that no. we as the taxpayers should, no. should be seeing. No, and, um, and, We're no safer. Yeah. And the people inside the prisons are no safer and the staff are no safer.
4: And this is actually what's uh, changing what's happening in the California prisons is because finally the state legislative body realized that we spent more money on our prisons, $8 billion a year, and we paid $6 billion a year for education. And they said no more. And so guess what? Change is going to be made. And it was an economically driven decision.
3: So if you had a message for, I don't know, our politicians in this country, what, what would you be urging them to do when it comes to our prisons and the situation that we find ourselves in at the minute, which is not a particularly good one? What would your message be?
4: I think what I would really encourage them to do is to look at this whole concept of trauma and create a plan, a longer-term plan, 18 months, three years at least. Which actually, in the grand scheme of things, isn't that long. No. But for a politician, that's quite... I know, a- <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, and, and put the pieces in place so that even if someone was changing jobs and changing role, that something was in place that people could follow, and that there were markers along the way, and there was a strategic plan, the way you'd run a business uh, with a plan, and um, move this forward throughout your system. And what about the training
3: academy? How important is it that this stuff gets implemented at the moment an
4: officer gets their very first day of training? It should be a key piece. We spend a lot of time uh, helping people know how to um, be aggressive, how to get people out of their cells, how to restrain them, and we don't spend any time really training them how to interact with people in a meaningful way. It needs to be a key part of the training academy.
3: So I often think about the fact that if my liberty was removed, even if I was locked into the nice house that I have with sea views, if I was without my husband, without my children, without access to my friends and my wider family, that that would just be terrible. If my movements were controlled by the state, my food, my clothes, even being in the house that I love, that would be an incredibly traumatic experience. So why is it, do you think, that we still deem it okay today to put people in sort of dilapidated Victorian buildings to serve a sentence, but even if they're upgraded and they build a nice new shiny prison? I mean, what what would a trauma informed prison look like? What are the type of prisons that, if it's prison at all, what should what can you conjure up in our minds to give us an idea of what actually we should be moving towards as a country
4: I think our our criminal justice systems in all the countries I've seen are fundamentally flawed and they're based on something that's very old and antiquated i My guess is when I look at men and women's facilities that maybe ten or fifteen percent of the people there may need to be in a custodial setting because we know have no idea how to reach them or help them, and they do need to be there for community safety. But the vast majority of people have no need to be there whatsoever. They need to be in their communities receiving services, and putting locking people up and putting them away doesn't make any sense at all. And even if you were going to put a certain percentage into a secured environment, then I think you would set up that environment so you teach people how to live in community. You set these up as um, places where people are learning how to be with other people and how to manage life and so forth. Nothing like what we have today. It makes no sense. No. It makes absolutely – because people come out worse than when they went in, and that – that makes no sense. And we know in our country,
3: um, we have 4,000 women roughly in prison. The number's are always fluctuating, but around that mark. And 84% of them are in for non-violent crimes. Some women are in for not paying their TV licences. And when I say that to people that I know, they don't believe me often, um, but it's true. So how do you think, if we're talking about women in particular, um, on this point, how do you think women in the UK could be looked after?
4: Yeah, in the UK you have this very bizarre thing where you have these women, nonviolent offenses for these very short crimes, put in a custodial setting that's very expensive to operate, that doesn't solve anything. These are women that need to stay in the community, that need to stay with their family, and they need to be able to get the services they need in their community, whether it's services because they have a substance a misuse problem or there's domestic violence or she needs help with job skills mm. or the whole range of things that so women are you're talking are struggling about women's senses. Exactly. Mm. Really functional uh, places where women can get the services they need. But to have the percentage of women you have that go in for these very short sentences does nothing except disrupt her and her family.
3: It makes everything worse. Yeah,
4: everything worse.
3: Their children go into care. Their mental health problems get worse. They get more violent, even if they weren't violent when they came in. Right. I know that if that happened to me, if I was imprisoned and removed from my children for not paying my TV license, I would become incredibly right. aggressive. Yeah. And that is... Because it
4: doesn't make sense. No, no, it's absolutely anger producing.
3: How do you feel about abolition? I mean, you said that actually there are some people that need to be kept um, away from society. And I, and I think I'd be inclined to agree with you. There are some people sort of beyond reach.
4: But are you an abolitionist? I certainly don't believe there's value in prisons. And will we ever get there? That's always a question. But I think we can look to Norway and the men's prison in Norway that is set Halden. up. Halden. Halden, exactly. And it's set up, it's totally different than any other prison in the world. And they decided that they were not going to have a traditional prison. Um, and I'm reading one article about it, I haven't visited there where someone said, well, we thought we'd do, you know, no fence and the meals are decent and the rooms are decent and there's views and nature. And and he said, you know, we think it's useful for the men who are here, but it certainly is much better for the staff. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think people forget that people work inside prisons. And it has a huge impact on staff to work in these really challenging places, very challenging places. But my hope would be that we as human beings, would re-look at this as a solution and realize our old solution from many years ago, from hundreds of years ago, is now a problem. And a problem we can't afford. No, we can do better.
3: Stephanie, it's always an absolute pleasure to talk to you. I find it so fascinating debating these points. And um, thank you so
4: much for speaking to us today. And thank you for inviting me. I love our conversations.
2: Edwina was in conversation with clinician, consultant, and lecturer, Dr. Stephanie Covington. Next time on Justice.
3: Yeah, so I'm on my travels again. This time I'm off to the North Midlands to Drake Hall Women's Prison for a mini tour and a chat to the governor there, Carl Hardwick
2: you arrive as a woman and you're just bombarded with all these very very negative notices about firearms and don't bring drugs in and if you have violence perpetrated against you do this we've completely changed that starting point it's a room with pictures now and a television that has a run of other women who've been at drake hall talking about their experiences in a positive way and it's about a fresh start that's next time on justice with edwina grosvenor The Justice Podcast is brought to you in association with One Small Thing. For more information, go to onesmallthing.org.uk. Justice is an MIM production. For more information, go to madeinmanchester.tv.
1: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well...